you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 4, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This morning, by the way, uh, we will be introduced to the primary work of shepherds after God's own heart. And then we will begin, the Lord willing, to start looking at the qualifications for such a one. <clears throat> qualifications and the work are not the same thing, but they do work together. So we will be looking at what they do and either next week or the week after, depending, depending on how far we get today, we will, we will see what they are, <clears throat> what they do, and what they are. So if you would please stand with me. We're going to read these four verses. We will be reading all of them and giving some uh, of the context of this entire passage so that we might better understand what the Spirit of God is saying to us. Our focus will be verse 4. Now let us begin. Acts 6, verse 1. This is the Word of God, brethren. We have the unspeakable privilege of holding in our hands what many of our brethren across the planet do not have. Love, that Bible, and the Christ revealed in it. Acts chapter 6, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was uh, multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But... We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us remain standing for our morning prayer. <clears throat> Father, once again, we are so grateful. And I do trust that every 
regenerate soul is grateful to be in thy presence with thy people to hear thy word in the power of thy spirit. Lord, we praise thee for who thou art, for what thou hast done in the history of the human race, and what thou wilt do in thy glory and beauty for all eternity in the reign of Christ Jesus. Our blessed Savior, O great head of the church, this church and every true church around this world, we need thee this morning. We need thee. We need thee above our food. We need thee above all the things that this world offers. We need thee because left to our flesh, we would pursue the things of this world and drop into a Christless eternity. O Christ, sustain thy people this morning. Maintain thy people this morning. Encourage their hearts. Father, we have some who struggle deeply with assurance that they are thine. I pray that thou wouldst come by thy word and by thy spirit. That thou would say to their soul, I am thy salvation. That they would see and understand that Christ is the willing Savior, not a liar, not a trickster, not a salesman, the almighty God come in the flesh, enthroned in glory, and the Savior of all those who repent and believe on him. Father, we have many that are afflicted with sicknesses, and long-term conditions. Wouldst thou have mercy upon their weak and feeble bodies? Thou art the great physician. Thou dost minister to our souls and to our bodies. Lord Jesus, thou came into this world and you ministered to souls and bodies. And we're asking thee to continue that great work. Who healeth all thy diseases. Lord, come. And help us in these continuing seasons of sickness and affliction. Holy Christ, we have those who are struggling hard against sin. 
Some of them have known joy, encouragement, as they have found some victory over those things that plagued them. May their hearts be full to the brim of overjoying praise for that mercy. For those, Lord, who have come today with bitterness of soul, having failed and fallen into sin. O blessed shepherd, wouldst thou come and revive him, her? Wouldst thou rescue? Wouldst thou draw near? Wouldst thou apply thy glorious promises and thy precious blood and make them to remember that on Christ the Father did pour out all his wrath for those very sins and failures. And Father, may all our hearts rise up to thy holy sanctuary and may thy word and spirit capture Enthrall our minds. Engage us. And may we hear thee. Understand thee. Apply thy truth to our lives. And live in the light of what thou dost feed us this day. Throughout the next week. Feed thy sheep, Lord Jesus. I have no power of my own to do so. Now come. Here are thy people. Bless them with what they need. Father, if some need rebuke, rebuke them and draw them to the cross. Father, if they need comfort, comfort them. May thy blessed Son, the God of all comfort, Shine into their broken hearts. Father, I do pray with all my soul. If we need joy, which thou please pour in the oil of gladness. Pour in that blessed spirit of joy into our souls and let us rejoice. May our hearts be strengthened with the knowledge that Christ our Lord, the King in his beauty, the good shepherd, is at thy right hand, seeing us, loving us, and interceding for us. Oh, please, save the sinner, save the rebel, save the deceived. If our gospel be hid, it is hid from them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Oh, God, scatter their darkness today and shine the light of thy gospel. Those that are running like fools toward the cliff, those that are running toward the flames of hell, stop them in their tracks and draw them to believe and love thee. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. The work of Jesus Christ's under-shepherds is varied and daunting. However, that great, arduous, and self-sacrificing work rests on two foundational duties. Effectual, fervent prayer and the preaching of God's word. Our message, our message then is entitled, Devoted to Prayer and the Word. May our loving and merciful Heavenly Father bless us, bless us with His power and presence through Christ our great High Priest. And may the Holy Spirit, our comforter, fill us with knowledge and understanding of Scripture and with love for Jesus Christ and His blood-bought congregation. Do not leave here today without that. And if you do, go home and ask God why. That said, our very first thought this morning in this blessed text is Christ's apostles understood the heart of their ministry. Christ's apostles understood the heart of their ministry. Last week, we summarized the following. Christ Jesus, the God-man, came into this world to save sinners. He prayed, he preached, and he worked miracles to affirm his mission. He died upon Calvary's cross. He rose again the third day to save his people from their sins. From their sins. Not so they could sin. His Father's eternal purpose for Jesus' earthly ministry was to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to initiate and seal the new covenant in His blood, and to establish His new covenant people. 
Jesus saves and gathers his people in communities called churches. As the head of the church, he authorized the apostles to go into all the world to preach the gospel and teach the nations to obey him by establishing churches. And the apostles were to establish elders in every church to manifest the authority of Christ in this world and to mature believers in the faith. Now, our text reveals aspects of the growth and function of the first New Covenant congregation, the church at Jerusalem. So, under this heading, the first thought we want to consider is this. New growth presented new problems. Verse 1. The phrase... In those days, connects to the preceding chapter. There, we read of the apostles' arrest, their angelic rescue, their appearance and beating before the Sanhedrin, and their determination to continue preaching and teaching Jesus Christ daily in the temple, whatever the cost. In those days reveals God's eternal purpose unfolding. You are watching predestination show its earthly manifestation. God's at work. This is the covenant of redemption unfolding. In those days meant that God blessed the apostolic preaching of the Savior. The number of the disciples was multiplied, says the sacred text. In other words, the church was growing in new creatures. It was growing in living stones as Jesus was building his temple of the Holy Ghost. Jews were repenting of their sins, were believing on the crucified and resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ. They were receiving baptism in his blessed name and were gathering with the Jerusalem congregation. But that rapid growth caused a new problem. There arose a murmuring. Uh, By the way, you do know churches have problems. You're aware of that, right? You should if you've been here any amount of time. If you've been in real churches anywhere around the world. They have problems. Because there's still Sinful flesh to deal with. Right here in the Jerusalem church, we're given a peek at what's going on there. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. 
The Greek-speaking Jews complained against their Hebrew-speaking brethren. The Greek-speaking widows, the most vulnerable people in their society. There weren't any insurance policies for these widows. There was no such thing. When a woman's husband died, she had to go somewhere. They didn't leave them large sums of money in the bank, generally speaking. Widows were vulnerable. That's why God loves them and oversees them and commands his churches to take note of them and care for them. Even in our day of insurance policies. So these vulnerable widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. That's a serious issue. So, verse 2 tells us the 12 addressed the problem. Chapter 1, verse 26 tells us that Matthias was chosen to take Judas's place among the apostles. So the 11 were now the 12. They understood the problem. They took responsibility for the problem. And they led the congregation through the problem. That's leadership. That's what shepherds are supposed to do. Identify the problem. Own your responsibility in dealing with it. And leading the congregation through the problem. First, they summoned the entire community of disciples. In other words, they gathered the church and then they taught them. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The Greek word translated reason means proper, right, R-I-G-H-T. In other words, they're saying it's not right for us to wait on the tables. Now, the apostles, listen carefully. The apostles had just been beaten for preaching the word of Christ. They had been responsible for increasing the number of the believers. And most of all, Christ had commanded them. Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's what you're looking at here. A church built on the preaching of Christ in Jerusalem. And it's growing. It's growing. It's alive. Churches should be alive. Amen. 
So Christ had commissioned them to preach, and that's exactly what they were doing. They were obeying the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church was flourishing, so much so that some of the widows were being overlooked. Let's not forget, on the very first day of the establishment of that church, 3,000 people were swept into it. It's a good thing there were 12 apostles there. Well, the 12 were right at the heart of that holy mission, keenly feeling their wounds for obeying Christ. It cost them to be faithful shepherds. It always does, one way or the other. So the apostles' words... It is not right did not mean that they were that they thought serving the needy was a task too low for them. That's not the idea. They understood that obeying the risen Christ's command to preach and teach, which they had just been beaten for, was a higher calling. And not saying that feeding the widows wasn't important. But they were saying, we've been called to something higher than that. The one who had all power in heaven and in earth had commissioned them. That's a little hard for us to grasp. But the resurrected Christ had said, go, and they were going. So their words mean something like this. It is not right in the eyes of Christ and in light of what he has commanded us for us to stop preaching Christ crucified, Christ risen again to serve tables. Now, they didn't just turn on their heels and walk out like a bunch of celebrities. First of all, they knew this. Not every, not, turn this around a little bit. They could not do everything that the church needed. No pastor, no group of pastors can. even though that's what some folk expect. But as good shepherds, verse number three, the 12 wisely resolved the problem. <clears throat> they said, wherefore, brethren, now the wherefore connects them to what they just said. It's not right for us to come and handle this task. <clears throat> wherefore, look ye out, among you, seven men. The apostles wisely involved the congregation in the important act of choosing men to care for the widows. By the way, this is one of the primary passage, uh, passages, along with a few others, why our confession tells us that the church 
appoints its officers. And choosing men to care for that task has become an important aspect of the biblical church life through the centuries. The congregation at Jerusalem was an elder-led congregation that called its members to limited but real authoritative decisions. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, dwells in every regenerate person. The church has an authority. We always have to remember that human authority, that which we exercise in the body of Christ, is all delegated. No man comes into this world and authority in Jesus' church. <clears throat> It's delegated. And, and we're seeing that very process happening right here. In this case, the congregation was to choose the men who would care for the widows. This was a specific task. The apostles taught the congregation that the Christian character of the men was essential. They didn't just say, look, find seven guys that you all like. I go out there and get some of your fishing buddies. Go get your hunting buddies. Don't ever do that. Unless your hunting and fishing buddies fit what is required by the Holy Spirit. By the power of that spirit, the apostle said the men had to be of honest report. In a church that large, they had to be men that were known for the good report about them. <clears throat> Not only were, the, were they to be uh, honest, were they to be men known and well spoken of, but they had to be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. That means you need to know them, right? You don't know that somebody comes into the world with wisdom. They would have to have been people that at least to some degree were seen by their fellow church members and men not only of a particular character, but manifest that they had some wisdom. Why? Because they were going to be appointed to take care of some tasks. And those tasks would demand wisdom. How are we going to solve the issue of the fact that somehow the Grecian widows are not being fed? And how do we do this without starting an uproar between the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking Members of the church. They need to be wise. And they need to be men that manifest in their lives. That they are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Well, how would we know that? By the way they live, by the way they obey Christ, by the way they worship, by the nature of their family government. This takes knowing people. If you live in your own little huddle, you're not living biblically in a church. You need to know the people in the congregation. You might find out people that you've been kind of staying at a distance from might be exactly the kind of people that need to be appointed to certain services in the church of Jesus Christ. If you don't know them, how you feel about them isn't the bottom line. The 12 apparently all agreed on this. Honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Whom, notice again, whom we may appoint over the business. You select them. We will lay hands on them. What's that about? Authorizing them to do this. This is authority. This is how delegated authority works. These men were to be of a Christian character and noticed, understood by the congregation to be men of this character. And then they're to say, all right, here's the seven. We think they're the ones. And the apostles say, okay, we'll appoint them. This has a democratic flavor but it's not a democracy. It has aspects of democracy as we believe a truly biblical congregation has. But there's also an order and an authority structure in it. It's all right here. Our Baptist forebears lived in passages like this, studying the word of God and saying, we believe church government needs to go this way because it seems to be the obvious revelation of God's word. Now, this is not the only passage, and we're not, we're not doing a, a, a series on ecclesiology right now, but we're hitting on some important aspects of it. By the way, ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture. So, the elders would then appoint the men to the task. Passages such as these help us to understand how biblical congregation functions. It's not a dictatorship. It was never intended to be that. It does, however, on the other hand, have a hierarchical structure. It is not a democracy. It never has been and it never will be, no matter how much those of the egalitarian mindset want to argue about it. Those godly servants chosen by the congregation would eventually be called deacons. And they're a blessing to the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ when they are men of this character. They are blessing to God's churches wherever they are. And I can say... We have three men that are great blessings to this congregation. 
Now, having said that, that brings us to verse number four. The twelve affirmed their main work. Having wisely resolved the problem in the Jerusalem congregation, the twelve asserted their Christ-commanded commission. But, important word, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word but sets an important contrast in the presence of the congregation. Every human being is a human being. And we all share human beingness. In that sense, we're all equal. But when we look at our human beingness, some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are not. <clears throat> some of us are handsomer than others, prettier than others, taller than others, shorter than others, narrower than others, more expanded than others. Some are strong, some are weak. Some can sing, I mean, gloriously, almost like an angelic being. And others can't carry a tune in a bucket. And they're all in the congregation. Is somebody dying? No, brother so-and-so is singing. We're not equal in what God has given us. We're different because that's the way God likes it. He likes the mix because those mixes are going to rub against each other. And they're going to start leaving iron filings and sawdust on the floor as the Lord makes us more like Jesus Christ. So, I say that to say, and in the same way, there are differences in ministry. There are differences among elders. We believe in the parity of elders. In other words, every elder has the same authority and the appointment from God. But not every elder has the same gifts as the others. And to try to push everybody into, into, into a particular mold is not wise. So, the point is, they said, now, we've had a problem, we've worked through that problem, and we have appointed men to help take care of that problem. But we're called to something else. And that's the way a church functions. It's like the body. Be ridiculous for the brain to say, I want to be a lung. This isn't fair. It would be ridiculous, you know, for your appendix to be saying, why are we always the ones that get taken out? Right? But they do. Bodies are different. Your body's different from mine. Men and women's bodies are different. Praise the Lord. And our gifts and our abilities are different. Stop listening to the satanic doctrine of egalitarianism. We're different. And we're appointed to different things. The Lord just selected 
seven men out of thousands of people to serve a particular way. It's right here in front of you. Now, the apostle said, we, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. These commissioned eyewitnesses of Christ's ministry tell us what they will do and how they will do it. They will pursue two things, prayer and the ministry of God's word. The order of the Greek sentence here is interesting. The literal translation of the text is we, but in the prayer and the service of the word will remain constant or will remain steadfast or will be devoted to. It says, here's what we're going to do. Pray and preach. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to be devoted to these two things. We're going to stay at it. We don't do it once in a while. It's not our hobby. We're investing our lives in this. That's the heart of a shepherd. A lot of men want to be pastors because they just want to preach. And they'll deal with some of the things that they have to if they have to. But that's what it's all about. Just want, just want to preach. It doesn't work that way. The Bible makes clear that they must be men of prayer. They must be men of the word. And then... Whatever else falls into the legitimate path, what they must do, must come under it. Now, what I want us to get then is what should be clear about a man is that he is devoted. He is constantly in prayer in the word of God. It's his main work. So Newman and Nida's handbook on the Acts of the Apostles tells us that the words give ourselves continually mean giving one's entire time to this particular aspect of the Christian work. Then they modify it a little bit. And they say, however, the phrase should not be understood as meaning that prayer and preaching were the only activities of the apostles. Rather, it was their main work. Their main work. You don't get appointed to the eldership and then try to figure out if you can do this. A congregation should be looking for men who are praying men. 
Not just saying, God is great, God is good, now we thank him for our food. Amen. I'm a man of prayer. Uh, no. Now I lay me down to sleep. That's okay, but that's not enough. We're called to be men of prayer because that is what keeps us in touch with the head of the church. Now, whatever else an apostle or an elder may do, these two things were the priorities. So it was with Jesus Christ. That's why. Even a surface reading of the four Gospels reveals that whatever else Jesus did, prayer and the ministry of the word were his priorities. He would draw away into private prayer or he would pray in public. At his baptism, he prayed in public. Then there would be times when he would go up into the mountain and spend the whole night praying. He spent the night in prayer before he chose his 12 apostles. And he knew that one of them was going to betray him. He was a man of prayer. He didn't pray once in a while. He didn't pray just when he was in trouble. He certainly didn't just pray because, uh-oh, um, some of the people in the church might think I'm a little less than what I profess to be, so I'm going to see if I can do a flowery prayer here. That's not what he's about. He's to be a man of prayer, and it should be obvious by his life. <clears throat> so, because it's Christ-like, do we remember? Let's all, let's all think together. Let's, let's have a group think. You ready? Let's get our minds together and let's see if we can unite for just a few seconds here. The purpose of predestination is to make God's people like Jesus. That's what God is doing every day. Are you walking in that program? Does your life say unmistakably, that guy wants to be transformed. He wants to be like Jesus. Let me ask you, be honest. How many times have you sat there and half murmured the song, <clears throat> I long to be like Jesus and didn't sing it with your whole heart? Do you really? That's the eternal purpose of God. You should long to be like Jesus. And you should know and you should love people that do, men and women. I often send a text to members of the congregation and, and to folks that are um, regular attendees and say, how can I be praying for you? It's, I get a lot of prayers, and listen how I'm saying this. I'm not attacking this. I get a lot of requests for pray for my children, pray for my spouse. That's important. We've got to pray for those things. But only if you say, I want to be more like Jesus, would you pray that I would be more like Jesus? Amen. So what are you thinking about? What is your prayer life about? Have you got the big picture in view? It's not, oh, well, I live down here till everything's worn out. And then we go up to heaven, the big Disneyland in the sky. God forbid. That would be like hell in heaven. But my point is, are you thinking today? Will you think tomorrow, at least at some point? I want to be more Christ-like. 
You saved me. You shed your blood to do what? So I can just flaunt my liberty all over this planet. No. So that you can become more Christ-like in his school, day in and day out. That's God's project. He's making his people like Jesus. And if he thinks you need a lot of sorrow and grief in your life to make you more like Jesus, he will bring it in by the truckload. If he, th- if he thinks you need affliction to make you more like Jesus, he will send it. If he knows that you need some joy and some comfort and some lifting up so that you can be more like Jesus, he sends it. But the end goal is not your happiness in this world as such. In fact, you might be one of those Christians that's unhappy a lot in this world because you know what you are and you know what this world is and what's happening in it. But you have a great hope that the day is coming when I will be like Jesus. We shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We're not going to be like the president. We're not going to be like the governor. We're not going to be like any other human being on this planet. We're going to be like Christ. That's why he saves us. That's why he stumbles you up sometimes. He'll say, oh, well, she, well, he, uh, they're drifting from me and they're just getting a little too comfortable with themselves. Let me remind them. And he'll remind you. And it may be something that will sting for a long time. But as you understand what the Lord's doing, you'll praise him. And you will thank him because it's making you more like Christ and less in love with the world. Now, why am I saying all of that? Because a pastor, an under-shepherd, an elder, a bishop, according to God's heart, must be devoted to prayer and prayer for the people in the congregation. Devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. Very often... Some of the most important ministry of the word you do is alone with someone as you counsel their souls. Because it's the word to be applied to their hearts. It isn't just standing in the pulpit and proclaiming or on the street corner. A true shepherd must be devoted to prayer. And the ministry of the word. Well now. Having considered. These priorities. Let's look at them. In some greater detail. This is what the apostles were about. As the apostles oversaw. That huge church in Jerusalem. They said. We're going to appoint. Some really godly men. To care for some of the tasks. In the congregation. But the congregation's got to be involved in that. They've got to know the people and say, here are the ones, and then we'll appoint them. 
So let's consider the fact that the shepherd after God's heart must be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Something that he constantly is about. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his works, speaks of a a pastor who used to meet his fellow pastors and members of his congregation with this greeting. Brother, do I find you praying? Now, I know that could become a prideful thing. You know, don't do this at home unless somehow you are welded in such a way that you can say to someone, are you praying? How's your prayer life? You know, maybe the best friend you have on this planet may be someone that comes to you and says, what's going on with your prayer life? Because if you can't say, well, the Lord's been very gracious to help me. He's growing me. I'm really beginning to see how desperately I need Christ every day. The more I pray, the more I see that I need him. That's the point. You're not praying? You don't need Jesus. Just the way it is. You've got all these other things that are so important that you don't even think that you'll give account for them in the day of judgment. Prayer is essential. J.C. Ryle wrote, Prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. Let's be honest. If we were sitting in my living room, I wouldn't mind just kind of leaning back in my chair a little bit and saying, you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that this man has a functioning brain cell? Or is that true? Prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. I can tell you, in any group of Baptists, somebody be griping about that. Reading the Bible. Listen to Ryle. Reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, hearing sermons, attending public worship, going to the Lord's table. All these are very weighty matters, but none of them are so important as private prayer. So in the light of that, if what he's saying is true, how are you doing? I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad. I want you to be sure That you're following Jesus. I don't want anybody on my watch going to hell. Unless they can look me in the face and saying. I'm going to live the way I want to. Don't talk to me anymore. Well at that point I'll say it's your life. Go ahead. But I might get in front of you. You have to run me down. Before I let you go to hell willingly. Your friends will press your heart about your walk with the Lord. The person that loves you most is the person that tells you the truth at the expense of your friendship, at the expense of your relationship. Man, it's not in prayer is going to bend to the will of the people. Listen. If it's true that prayer is more important, nothing more important than private prayer, an elder, a pastor, 
must be a man of prayer. And I will tell you, I have struggled with that for years. Prayer is hard. It's hard. But you see, that's where you start finding out what you are. That's your prayer life is telling you. It's a witness standing out there saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when was the last time we really prayed? I don't mean that five minutes when you rushed through yesterday morning. Oh, when did you get down with the Lord? When did you say I'm going to set some time to be alone with Christ? These are real matters. The health of your soul depends on prayer. That's why shepherds have to be men of prayer. Very often they're praying for people who won't pray. And praying that they will pray. Well, what is prayer? Let's talk about that for a minute. I love this subject. <clears throat> the spirit breathe text is very clear. We will give ourselves continually to prayer. We will give ourselves continually to prayer. Well, what is that? What is it that they're going to be devoted to? Well, <clears throat> that in itself is a great subject for study. But let us hear the voices of men uh, of prayer, men of prayer from the past. First of all, the Reformed John Calvin, or the Reformer John Calvin, defined prayer as, listen carefully to this, a communion of men with God by which, listen to these words. If you appreciate words, you have to appreciate this. A communion of men with God by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience that what they believed was not in vain. Prayer proves the promises of God. You notice his word, experience. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not just talk. Prayer is talk. It's talk to God. It is entering the heavenly sanctuary. You are in union with the living Christ if you're born again. You are in union with the God of the universe. The most important person in all existence. In union with Christ. In union with his Father. In union with the Son. And you are able, because you're in union, for your heart to rise up. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Your true prayer at the throne of grace is entering the sanctuary to talk to God personally. When I was in the music business, people would say to me, Oh, 
you've been out with that band? What are they like? Like just about everybody else out on the road? Won't go into that here. The fact of the matter is, we're all impressed with some other bag of dust. That's tragic. You know why? Because we were made in the image of God and we were made to be religious, to be devoted to something. And if you're not devoted to Jesus Christ, write it down today. You are devoted to yourself and that will take you to hell. Guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. So, Calvin says, we can enter the the heavenly sanctuary and appeal to him in person. We can bring our, have mercy on my children, have mercy on my spouse, have mercy on my congregation. Are you praying for the church daily? Are you you saying, oh God, we're going to gather again next Lord's Day. I want to know your presence. I want to know your power. I want to know your converting power. Come, be with us. Help that pathetic vessel of dust to bring your word to us. Oh, you know, our church is getting to be kind of doldrum. I bet you're not praying. I don't usually say bet, by the way. I'm from Louisiana. We had a lot of betting there. Brethren, this is vital. This is vital. This is the serious heart of the matter. John Knox, another reformer, defined prayer as an earnest and familiar talking with God. That's beautiful. An earnest. Some of us just kind of like, okay, well, Lord, help me today. Do a little better than yesterday. Get on your face and be earnest with God. You have no idea what you're going to face today. You don't know what you're going to face personally. You don't know what you're going to face in your family. You don't know what's going to happen at work. You don't know what's going to happen in our state. You don't know what's going to happen in this world with some of the demonic heads that are running stuff out there. You don't know. You better be in touch with the one who does know. That's it. Prayer. An elder, a pastor has to be a man of prayer. He must be. Weak and feeble as they are. See, the issue isn't like, well, how's your prayer life? Stock answer. Brother Clarence and I have talked about this many times. Talked about it here. How's your prayer life? Well, you know, it's not what it should be. All right. Thank you for describing it. What are you doing to change that? What conviction has come to your soul and you've said, I don't talk to God. I say that he saved me. I say that he's given me eternal life. But I'm busy. I got stuff to do. Really? Hmm. What are you doing to change that? I'm not trying to tell you what I'm trying to do. 
Brother Frank has preached two messages on waking up. I'm not seeing any waking up yet. I'm waiting. Wake up. Christianity in this book is something real. You're seeing what's going on. The unfolding of God's predestinating purpose right here in this passage. Jesus said, go. And they went. And they preached. And the church started growing. It was alive. And one of the reasons it was alive is because the apostles were devoted to prayer and the word. Well, I was born in a church, so I'm okay. (laughs) Do you believe that devilish lie? You're okay when the Spirit of God opens your heart and you repent of your sins and believe on the crucified and resurrected Savior. Then you're okay. You're really okay. You're eternally safe. But you know what will happen? You will pray. Happened to Paul. Look at it. Behold, he prayeth. And I've said this numerous times. We'll say it again. He grew up praying. He was a Pharisee. He was born a Pharisee. He was a religious man. He could mutter prayers every day. He would have to, like any faithful Jew, stand and say, The Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and all of thy soul and all of thy mind and all of thy strength. Then he'd say it again in the evening before he'd go to bed. And he was lost. He he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Lost. Religion doesn't save you. Christ does. Now this is the point. Get this. It's not surprising that when Jesus says, okay, uh, he's sending his man to go and talk to Paul, have him baptized. He says, look, uh, the man said, I've heard this. I've heard about this guy. He's really wicked. He's really done a lot of trouble to your church. What did Jesus say? He's my chosen vessel. Behold, he prayeth. He could have said, well, he can rattle off the entire Isaiah 53 without even blinking. But you probably could. Brethren, prayer is the heart and soul of Christianity. If we don't have praying pastors, we're generally not going to have praying people. Ryle's call to prayer. Have you ever read it? If you've not read it, and you profess to be a Christian, read this as soon as possible. I mean, read it. Take it home. Get alone. Read it. And say, is this me? Or is it not? Take it and read it. We publish it. Tens of thousands of them go out around the whole world. If people would take it and believe it, man, we'd have praying people all over the place. Same thing here. Hearing God's rod. Are you in affliction? Read this. There's a treasure house back there. Are you reading it? Are you plundering it? I want to know more about prayer. Well, if you're in affliction, if you're suffering, if you're going through difficulties, read this and and check the the scripture references and say, yeah, that's not what that's saying. Or 
Sure enough, it is. John Bunyan, you should read this. Bunyan on prayer, fantastic. In fact, I'm going to read his definition of prayer to you right now. Bunyan gives us this wonderful definition. Prayer is a sincere, hmm, what a way to start, is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out. Affection means taking your heart, your soul, your mind, and engaging with God. It isn't just feeling something. Not just feeling an emotion, though your emotions are involved. An affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Close quote. (laughs) You won't find better definitions. You can certainly find shorter ones. You can find shorter ones. But that's a bib- what he was doing was tying together all sorts of scripture about prayer into one beautiful, glorious definition. Praying is not just part of the furniture in the church. Brethren, it's, it is the response of a soul that's alive to the one who made it alive. I've looked at some large, long definitions here. Let me just give you one short one. (laughs) I want the Dickens to find out who pushes my clock ahead. So, um, Thomas Watson describes prayer this way. Now, we can all remember this. Prayer is nothing but the soul's breathing itself, the soul's breathing itself into the bosom of its father. You can remember that. It's the souls exhaling all the things in our heart, in our soul, to our father in heaven. Not just God, not the sovereign judge, not just Lord, but our father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, our father, which art in heaven. Well, pastors must be men of prayer, but we're going to stop there. <clears throat> we're going to stop there. So there will be part two. We'll do part two next week. We'll finish prayer, and then we'll go on to preaching God's word. There's no biblical leadership by shepherds. If they are not men of prayer and the word. You can start calling them managers. Or you can call them whatever you want. But they're not shepherds. Unless they're in communion with the good shepherd. And live and feed on the word. And then preach that word to God's people. I was going to put this under preaching, but I'm going to end with this today. Some people would say, well, you're kind of excitable, right? You're an intense fellow. You're all really intense about this stuff? I am. 
I sure am. There's nothing more important in this world than your immortal soul. Nothing. As far as your personal life, you have an immortal soul and you can lose it. I don't usually quote films. And I'm not quoting, but I'm going to reference. Do I take this seriously? I do. In the film Fireproof, about a fireman, got his own issues and his home. There's a scene, to me it was the only real scene in the movie that was good. My opinion. You can love the whole thing if you want. <clears throat> but the house is on fire and there's a child in the house. And he rushes into this house, which is burning faster and faster by the moment. And he finally finds the child in a room, lying unconscious on the floor. And by the time he, looking around, the house is in flames and it is engulfed. He can't go in any direction. He has an axe with him. And he looks at the wooden floor and he starts hitting it with all his might. He hits it. He hits it again. After three or four hits, he's groaning. Why was he so intense? Because he knew that child was about to die. And he was not going to let that happen if he had anything to do with it. And he beat that floor until a hole finally started to appear. And he starts pulling up the boards. And the fire is everywhere around him. And he takes that child and he has to drop her down through the hole and drop in next to her. And he has to crawl holding holding with one hand and pulling himself along with the other as the house and the floor and the flames fall in around them. And he's groaning and he knows that this might cost him. But he sees one exit and he crawls toward that exit and he finally gets to the exit and he has to turn around and start using his foot to kick it out so that he can get this child out. He finally kicks it out. They pull him out. And he goes and sits under a tree. And he's in shock for a long time. Because of everything he had to do. To save that life. There's more important things in this room right now than just your human life. It is your immortal soul. 
And if I have to beat every wall and knock holes through this concrete floor, if that's what I have to do, to say, listen to the word of God. There's one escape. Your house is on fire and you will not escape it unless you get through that one opening. Jesus said, I am the door. That's it. There's no other. There is no other. Don't look for anything else. Is it intense to do this? It sure is. Because some of you are on your way to hell and you do not care. You don't care. You're not bothered. You're comfortable in your darkness. If I've got to take out the axe all around you and do everything I need to do, I will do it. But I can't save you. I would love to say I can drag you through the door. That's the one thing I can't do. I just have to keep saying, there's the door. It's Jesus Christ. I use the sword of the Spirit. I'll do everything I can to cut down any phony objection that you have. I will do everything I can to cut to pieces like uh, Samuel cut Agag to pieces. I will do everything I can to go after any hope you have except Jesus Christ. And I'm serious about it. I might be gone tomorrow. I might be standing in the presence of God. But I will tell you, as long as I'm here, I will take the axe and beat that floor. I would love to just be sweet old grandpa, but I can't when I see the flames. So, men need to be men of prayer. Elders need to be men of prayer. They need to constantly be praying for God's people. They need to constantly pray about what they've just preached. And next week we will talk about how important the preaching of this word is. If God gives us another week. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus. You said of Tyre and Sidon and of the places you preached that if the miracles worked in them had been worked in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented and believed. Lord, I pray with all of my heart that no one here will ever hear you say, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in that day. Lord, please, thou hast come, thou hast brought thy word. I trust your sheep have fed well. I pray that those who do not know you would be called into your blessed flock. Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Please come by 
and work thy glorious grace and mercy in the hearts of our lost ones. Bring them. Bring them into thy flock. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Oh, that great shepherd. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go in the name of our Savior.